Let us turn to the Gospel of John, now the 12th chapter, John chapter 12, and reading at verse 1 through to verse 11 this morning, John chapter 12, and reading at verse chapter, uh, 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. God add his blessing to this word. Amen. Well, in Scripture, character contrast is a recurring theme where you have striking differences between two people or more. There's this, this contrast between people, and you often see it in key chapters of Scripture this idea of contrast. You see it in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. And we'll see it again here. Two characters often in scripture put together in the same chapter reveal two different kinds of spiritualities. That is what someone really knows about spiritual life. And you will see it in contrast this person sees the spiritual life this way. This person sees the spiritual life another way. And then you will see it how they live, what they believe, and how they will practice it. There is a contrast of two different spiritualities often in Scripture. There's a technical name for that, and you find it often still in use in English literature. It's known as a foil, 
where you foil two characters in a plot line. If you're a student of Shakespeare, you'll know that Shakespeare, of course, was very good at it. He was a master of it. He foiled his characters, comparing one virtuously or unvirtuously with the other. Great novelists have done it. Jane Austen, Emily Bronte, they all use the foil technique of contrasting characters, contrasting, highlighting their differences. And if you remember, those of you who may have gone once to buy a diamond ring for the one you were going to marry or to buy a ring, you went into the jeweler's store and the first thing the jeweler, he or she did was they brought out the diamond and then they brought out a foil device that is usually black now of some kind, velvet, and it's the foil device that they use to show the beauty of the diamond. That's where we get it. By seeing the diamond on the foil pattern, whatever it is, the beauty of it comes out. It's the contrast. So that's what we're seeing here. We're foiling characters who we were going to look at this morning. We could have done that with Cain and Abel, but here we do it with Mary of Bethany and with Judas. Two distinct spiritualities. The scene is very simple. It's an anointing. An anointing of the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are three other passages where you find the anointings in the Bible. And you can jot them down and read them again and parallel the structure. Matthew 26 has an anointing at Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Mark chapter 14 has the anointing again at the same house of Simon the leper. And then in Luke chapter 7, there is an, another anointing. And so if you look at these three parallel passages and take it with John 4, you're left with a question. How many anointings did Jesus have of his feet or his hand, head as well? And you probably come and say, well, there's probably two different anointings or there may even be three different anointings. And I'm not sure that that spends to spend a lot of time and that would be very helpful. In this text, it's in the home of someone in Bethany. It could be the home of Simon the leper, but it's probably the home of Lazarus and of his sister. But again, it's not really that clear. It's in the home of Bethany, and it's a feast, and they're celebrating. It would be the equivalent of an American Thanksgiving Day or a Canadian Thanksgiving meal. It would be the equivalent of having Christmas dinner together with your family and friends. You are celebrating something that has happened and an event or you're perhaps having a graduation party and it's a celebration, it's a feast because good things have happened and you've invited your friends together and you're having this wonderful feast and festival. And why are they having this feast here? Because Jesus has done wonderful things in Bethany. He has done wonderful miracles and when something good has happened, there should be a response of thanksgiving and celebration. And so that is what takes place here. And into that context then comes the foil of the two characters being contrasted 
Mary and Judas. So we'll look at Mary then and the way of a loving disciple. And we'll look at, secondly, Judas, the way of rejection and hardness of heart. And then we will look at Jesus, the way he vindicates and gives instruction through this anointing. Turn then to verse number three, and you see the character of Mary is brought forward in one brief verse. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Here is the action that Mary is doing. She is taking this prepared ointment that probably had imported ingredients from India and probably pistachio nuts and all these things ground together in this pasty, fragrant, perfumed substance of oil and paste. And she covers the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she uses her extremely long hair in the process. And you all look at it and we sort of see it all sounds rather messy to our genteel way of looking at life and seeing things. But the key in it all is her bodily action. She kneels at the feet of Jesus. She pours and places the pasty oil upon his feet, but she's kneeling at the feet of Jesus. The symbolism cannot be overlooked because as she is there working at his feet, she has lowered herself in a position of kneeling to the one who is her Lord, her Savior. There is a wonderful symbolism in all of that, that when you become a disciple of Jesus, you must kneel to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of all discipleship to bow to Jesus Christ, to honor him, to confess him, to be submissive in heart to him, to be respectful, humble-minded, devoted, loving, sacrificial, adoring, serving him. And you can smell the atmosphere of her service because the house is filled like the temple of God in sacrificial worship and adoration to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. The application is startling. Have you bowed your heart and will to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you declared that He is my Lord? And that I kneel before him. I am submissive to his will. The application continues on. Have you declared love and adoration for him? Have you declared a heart sincere in worshiping to him? And have you declared as a disciple that you are prepared to sacrifice your own ambitions and sacrifice them for the Lord. At the heart of Mary of Bethany's submissive discipleship and to the being a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
is the theme of love and generosity and sacrifice. It is very interesting that the virtue of sacrifice seems to be coming less and less of a virtue for us. I was reading this past week, who I consider perhaps the greatest of all the missionaries that left United States in the mid-19th century, John Layton Wilson. He said this, Self-denial and personal sacrifices are the part of friends of the Redeemer and are the chief and almost the only means by which his kingdom is advanced in this world. The mark of Christian discipleship is sacrifice. Sacrifice of time, sacrifice of wealth, sacrifice of life. Mary's devotion is love. Mary's devotion is sacrificial discipleship. At times, the Christian life can be easy. But Mary is a symbol here, as a character, reminding us to kneel to Christ, to bow to his will, and be prepared and willing to sacrifice our all. In preparing several of the chapters for the textbook we're working on right now, it is amazing to read the short lifespan of so many of those who went out with the gospel in the 19th century. One month died. Two months died. Three months Seven months. Ah, a year. Constantly. Death taking hundreds of missionaries within the first 12 months of their service for the gospel. And the testimony repeatedly is the same. It was no sacrifice because of his sacrifice which was greater that is the theme of our calling the generous sacrificial spirit that beloved hymn by the Korean Chung Kwan Park which is based on this to my precious Lord I bring my flask of fragrant oil kneeling down I kiss his feet anoint them with the oil it's a hymn that speaks of sacrifice, willing to sacrifice for the king and to bear it for him. Mary is, in her character, shows us where our treasure should be as believers. Where was Mary's treasure? Mary's treasure was in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. She was his disciple. She lived out the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in Matthew 6, in verses 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. 
She is a living demonstration that you see her heart. You see into her heart. Her heart is to adore Christ, to serve Christ, to sacrifice for Christ, to give her all for Christ. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What about Mary's motives then? It's very interesting. Some people have secularized this text and so much they have said, you know what, psychologically, Mary's motive in giving the perfume and the nard and the pound or the 11 ounces of it, which is a year's wages, her motive was to seek attention for herself. Now you read the text and you say to yourself, is that the motive of Mary, attention-seeking? To become the center of the party, to become the center of the feast, of the festival? No, it is not that. There is not a hint of that at all. It is humility. It is adoration. It is love. It is sacrifice. The motive of her heart was not about herself, but it was looking outward to the Lord who has given so much to her and to those that she loved. This was the celebration that came out of the overflow of her heart to celebrate the grace of God in healing Lazarus, in restoring Simon the leper of Bethany, in what the Lord had given and brought and instructed to Mary and brought to her and her life. Her motive was not to give attention to herself or seek attention. Her motive was very simple. Out of the overflow of her heart, one who had experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ overflowed a heart of sacrifice that was giving. That is the same testimony of every disciple. Grace is undeserving. And in that undeserving grace, the heart overflows to those who have been forgiven much. There is much to praise the Lord. There is much to give thanks to. There is a graciousness of giving towards the other. Have you known that grace of God and forgiveness, pardon, and mercy? Then may your heart overflow with that gracious overflow of God's grace to you. Now the foil moves on in verses 4 and 6. And you turn there to the character of Judas. And we see a very different kind of character at this celebratory feast. Judas is the way of rejection and the way of hardness. And so in these verses 4, 5, and 6, we learn about a contrast. Now, I should mention there is another one further down, and I won't take time to exposit it, but you will notice in verses 9 to 11, there is a parallel to Judas. It is the same theme. It's a slightly different problem. 
It's rooted again in jealousy, which is covetousness, but it's a different manifestation of covetousness. And there you meet the chief priests. And their response to Jesus is the same as Judas's now. And so that, again, is something that you could look at and say, ah, there is a parallel to Judas. I mention it in way of passing their contrast, and they fall into the category of Judas. Now, the story of Judas, he is a man who is very intelligent, and he's crafty of making an argument. Maybe you have argued with people like that, or maybe you find it happening in your own home at times. There are those who are very crafty. They're good at arguing, and they can hit you so quickly with an argument that you say instinctively, ah, that's not right, but you have no words to come back to them. Been there? Can you relate? You know people who argue that way to you? They're quick on their feet. But instinctively you know something's wrong. Judas is a crafty, argumentative person. And he presents in verse 5 his argument. And look at his argument that he presents in verses 4 and 5 here. It is an argument that sounds good on the surface. This was an enormous amount of money. It could have done a lot of good for a lot of poor people. And we've wasted it. Now, instinctively, what does your heart say? If instinctively you buy the argument... You have judged yourself. But if instinctively your conscience is awakened, that you say there is something wrong here, then you have a soul that is awakened to this truth. Judas's argument is what we call a specious argument, it's superficial. He's trying to be plausible, but it's a deception, trying to get away from truth. You see, you could say, I believe in social justice. I believe in helping the poor and societal justice. That's what he is arguing. It's all about social justice. Sounds good, doesn't it? But is it? Giving to the poor. Who would not want to give to the poor? You do not have to be a Christian to give to the poor. You can unite society across various bands of religions, causes, philosophies, and we'll all give to a charity that's doing some particular good work in famine relief or something. Give to the poor of Haiti. You could have given all that money to the poor of Haiti. Do you see the argument? It is a specious argument, though. Why? Because there is something wrong with this man's heart. 
there is something grossly wrong in his heart. He has been already dipping into the offering bag that he is the treasurer for. He has been taking money out of it. And he has been dipping in, but no one knows about it. He's a thief already. All these things will be revealed as time goes on. But he has been personally dipping into the offerings. He was a man of incredible privilege. Three years he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Three years he saw every miracle of Jesus. Three years he heard all the teaching of Jesus. Three years he had experienced the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three years he had been called an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yet his heart was rotten. It was stinking with its sin that was never dealt with or confessed. It all seems impossible to us, said J.C. Ryle, that a man could spend three years with Jesus, listening, following, experiencing his kindness, being commissioned an apostle, and yet have a heart so rotten and show such deception to people. But the cause of Judas, to paraphrase Ryle, shows plainly that we can be deceived or we can even deceive ourselves. Judas didn't start probably where he ends up here. You see, the downward trial is step by step. It is little by little. There's a root that begins to grow and to flourish. There was a root that had taken hold of Judas three years ago. And what was that root? That was the root of a sin called greed, rooted in covetousness, a violation of the 10th commandment in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. It was a root. And you can hear the old hymn writer. Can you hear that being sung if you know it? Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. But it begins as a root. And little by little, there is an incremental development. And you give way to the heart of greed. And it leads to that act of stealing. And then it leads to argumentation that tries to excuse yourself and justify your sin and reject what this woman who has done because she has experienced the grace of Jesus and he should have been jumping in with her and saying hallelujah this is a great moment of what you have done but little by little he has fallen into the trap and now he has come to that place where Satan is at work within him. And he is listening to the deceits of Satan and to the lies of Satan. And he uses his false piety about social justice to cover it all over. And his heart is rotten and corrupt. And little by little, it is led to this weak where he will betray 
the Lord Jesus. It's a warning every time you see a sink of water and you know there's a slow link in that uh, plug and you go back maybe an hour or two later and all the water is gone little by little until it is all lost. That's what happened with Judas. It was the particular sin that grew in his heart, the sin of covetousness. And it is a reminder that earthly treasure, again, Matthew 6 and 24, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And little by little, that is exactly what he did. Beware, then, of deceiving the Lord. Beware of the corruption of the human heart. Beware that we can even fool ourselves. That we can begin to think that our securities and our equities all can become our eternal security. And there is a warning to our heart that our heart must be in Jesus Christ. That our eternal security is in him and we are to be washed in his blood filled with his blood and he is the one that we need Mary the way of the disciple sacrificing for her Lord Judas the way of the hardened deceived one and then Jesus' response to the foiled characters in verse 7. And how does Jesus respond in all of this? He vindicates Mary. He vindicates her. He accepts Mary. He affirms Mary in all ways there. Jesus vindicates. Jesus said, leave her alone. That's enough, Judas. That's enough, Judas. Your faith is but temporary. It has come and it is gone. Leave her alone. For she has faith. Jesus accepts her and affirms what she has done. Jesus clears Mary of all blame or suspicion that Judas has done. He proves that she is right. The gift that she has given is a wonderful gift and it is a gift that is in preparation for his very burial that will come in a few days' time. It is prophetic. It is understanding. And because it is an extraordinary event and she has responded in an extraordinary way in this season of unusual grace that is being displayed and what is about to take place. She is vindicated for what she has done. Then Jesus goes on in verse 8, and he offers the second part of it. Yes, it is true. You will always have the poor with you. Jesus affirms that. It's a truth. There will always be a day and an age before everyone to be just 
to all people to be loving to your neighbor. What Jesus does here is two things. He affirms the second table of the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Walk justly. Seek justice and give neighborly love when you are able and as your means provide to the poor, to the needy, to those in distress. It is a permanent duty of all God's children. So these are permanent duties, verse 8. Ah, but verse 7, there are occasions that are extraordinary. There are out of the regular. And she has responded spontaneously, sacrificially, out of the generosity of her heart. And she has seen the situation at hand and read it properly. In days of great revival in the Christian church, there are amazing testimonies of some very unusual occurrences whereby people who had been radically converted, renewed in their spirit in amazing ways, respond with such generous outpourings of display and physicality that it upsets people. And often they turn away from it. Beware of that. There are always excesses. But amidst those excesses, there are hearts that are genuine, like the Mary of Bethany, who is in love with her Lord and has responded in grace. So we must be careful that we do not knock this off its proper platform and recognize the extraordinary overflow of her heart. As Quan Park said, to my precious Lord I bring my flask of fragrant oil. Kneeling down, I kiss his feet, anoint them with the oil. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your heart's treasure satisfied in Jesus? Is your heart's treasure in the eternal security of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is your heart's treasure like Judas in the money and securities of this world that will all pass away? Mark 9, or verse 9 of 14, is the final word. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done 
will be told in memory of her. One of the great saints of Christian history. A poor woman who knew where her treasure was in Jesus Christ. So every believer, whoever, wherever they are, wherever their social standing, if their treasure is in Christ, they are counted in verse 9 a mark. That is their testimony. Let us pray. We thank you, O Lord, for the contrasting way your Spirit has brought this chapter together and the great foil of these two characters <coughs> teaches us so much. Bless us as we meditate on them. Awaken the conscience of our heart and soul that we will, we will be found not at rest until at rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. For Jesus we pray. Amen.